0: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows and it makes the algorithm God's happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also be sure to visit our website, not real art.com, sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at not real art for artists and our art lovers. A lot of great stuff there on the website. You'll see, you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000 can buy affordable, original and contemporary art through our partnership with sugar press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Okay, people, we've got another one of our grant winners for you today. The one and only Daniela Garcia, beautiful soul, incredible artist. Love talking to her yet again, an art educator. I think two of our grant winners this year are art teachers teaching high schoolers all about art and to explore their... Inner artist. So they're doing God's work and whatnot, but they're also incredible artists. And we're so grateful to have these human beings as part of our 2021 class of grant winners. But Daniela Garcia is one of those special people. And last night I had a chance to sit down and talk to her about her life and her work and her subjects and what inspires her painting. And of course, I was not at all surprised to find out that Daniela is a beautiful soul. And I know you're going to love this interview, but before we get into it, I also want to share with you some exciting news, some fun, exciting news. If you listened to the last podcast, you heard me talk about the one and only man one is coming back. Yes, indeed. And I missed that dude. We got into this together and the first 50 episodes or so, I think we were in it deep and life took him on a different path for a while but life is bringing us back and boy am i stoked about what we're doing together we are actually creating a new segment where it's just him and i talking about whatever we want to talk about of course with common through line theme of art and culture but yeah you know, we might talk about tacos <laughs> we might talk about politics i don't know but it's going to be great And in fact, it's going to be so great. We came up with a great name that really says what the show is. I couldn't be more happy with the title of this new segment that Man One and I are doing because the names, you know, some of the best names have to be very descriptive, right? As to what you're going to get in the package, right? And life's hard enough. You don't want to guess. You don't want to have to wonder what the show is about or the segment's about. You want to read about it in the name, right? Well, this new segment that One and I are producing, where it's just him and I talking, look out for it because it's a winner. We're calling it Gringo and the Man. Yes, you heard it right. Gringo and the Man. Can you guess who the gringo is? (laughs) Can you guess who the man is? Well, pay attention, people, because in very, very short order here, you're going to be hearing Gringo and the Man we're going to launch it here on the Not Real Art Podcast, and you're going to hear us chop it up as we love to do, talking shit about all kinds of shit. Some of it will be total nonsense. Some of it will be thoughtful and deep, probably mostly total nonsense, but you know we'll get smart from time to time. So look out for Gringo and the Man coming up with the one and only Man One and yours truly, Sourdough. So that's some fun, exciting news I wanted to share with you before we get into this. Now. All that being said, the main event for today's show is our 2021 grand winner, the one and only Daniela Garcia. Beautiful human being, beautiful soul, and incredible artist. Be sure to check her work out. The links are in the in the show notes and on our website at notrealart.com. So be sure to check out her work and support her, buy her work, collect her work, because it's beautiful stuff. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Daniela Garcia. Daniela Garcia, welcome to the Not Real Art podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Oh my gosh, we're finally doing this.
1: I know it only took like two months, and
0: <laughs> but hey, we, you know what? We're persistent. We're stubborn. We're dedicated. We got nothing but will and vigor. So here we are.
1: <laughs> That's the important thing.
0: <laughs> well, the you know last time when we tried to do this, you were in Mexico.
1: Yeah, I was visiting my family. I hadn't seen them in a couple of years, and then the pandemic hit. So I wanted to go down and just kind of check in to see how they were all doing. And the funny thing is, where my dad's from, it's a super small rural, like farming town, but they do have Wi Fi. They have had it for about five years now. So it's still a new thing. And it was going strong every day that I was there. And then the day of the podcast, 20 minutes before I was supposed to log on, it just there was a blackout on all the Wi-Fi <laughs> in the entire town. And then I was like, well, this seems like it would have been the perfect time for it to happen.
0: <laughs> Not meant to be. But I hey, you know, the fact that you actually had good Wi-Fi for the balance of your trip. I mean, that's pretty epic. I mean, that's good for the town, I hope as well. You know, definitely. They have internet. That's great. So how long were you in Mexico?
1: I was there for about two weeks. I spent most of the time in my dad's little hometown, but I did spend a couple days visiting other family members in like the capital city of Guanajuato. And that was really fun. That city is just so much fun to like walk around in, but you definitely need a local to show you around. Like there's no street signs anywhere. And all of the streets, you can only access them by walking. They're kind of like alleyways. So you really have to know someone that knows their way around so you don't get lost.
0: Okay, so help me understand exactly where in Mexico we are geographically. Where in the country is this city?
1: Dead center, actually. Guanajuato is the state that is dead center of the country. It's mostly all farming towns out there. There's like a few cities that are kind of larger, but none of them like anywhere near the size of like cities in California, like LA or anything like that. Sure, sure. Yeah, like I think the biggest city would probably be closer to the size of, I don't even know, like maybe Carson or something, but they're, they're pretty small and they're all pretty far apart. Like it takes about 20 to 30 minutes to get to like any city in any direction out there.
0: So central Mexico, very rural. Yeah. And the landscape is what, hilly, mountainous? How would you describe it?
1: Mainly hilly. During the summer is the rainy season. So greener than Washington. It's really gorgeous to kind of walk around and Just see like all the like everything blooming, not just from kind of like the farmlands, but also just like the the landscape. Like it's gorgeous during the summer.
0: Oh, fantastic. What do you know what kind of crops they typically grow there?
1: Yeah. So it uh, it usually varies from time of year and then town to town. But the crops that my family grows is mainly corn, maize, they grow beans, and then sometimes they grow garbanzo. So it just depends on like the season of it because they don't have irrigation the way we do in California. Like you usually have to be a pretty wealthy farmer to, to install that. So they rely only on like the, the rainfall. Wow. Yeah.
0: Just praying to the gods for the rain, basically.
1: Yeah. And then uh, I, when I went one year, they were having a dry spell and it hadn't rained when it was supposed to have already rained for a month. So nothing was growing. And they do a like a tradition where they take the local saint because each town has like its own saint, like a Catholic one. And on days where it doesn't rain and the crops start to die out, like the townspeople will literally take the saint out of the church and they'll walk around the town up and down where the fields are and they'll chant kind of like a prayer, like almost kind of like a rain dance, like hoping that the prayer will get up to like God and send some rain so they can have their crops going that year.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's their whole livelihood.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And, and so climate change must be impacting them on some level. Are they getting more rain than usual or less yeah, rain than usual? Yeah,
1: they're getting more. Like when I was there, it had been, it was the first day that it hadn't rained after a 30-day streak. So there was rivers, like literal rivers flowing through the entire town because the town's kind of on a slope. So they come down from the hill and it usually fills up, like sometimes it'll flood the houses, but... It's It's been crazy. It's been more rain, so much rainfall that the, it's actually hurting the crops at this point because it's over soaking the soil and it's not giving them time to grow.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's what I understand about climate change is that it is really makes your climate more of what it typically is. So in other words, if it's cold, it's going to get colder. If it's hot, it's going to get hotter. If it's wet, it's going to get wetter. My thoughts to the farmers there sending good vibes for rain because boy, not too much.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Just the right amount. Just the
0: right (laughs) amount. How old is the family farm? Your dad grew up there? His His family's from there? Like, how long have you had that land?
1: As far as I know, it's like generations back. It's not really like a like a farm in the sense that we're used to seeing like here in like the countrysides in the US where it's like one giant piece of land and like the family lives on it. It's more so like all of the families live in the town and outside of the town, there's plots of land where if you're able to inherit one or you somehow had enough money to buy one, well, then you farm those plots kind of thing. And my grandpa owns, I think three of the plots that are surrounding the town. And between him, some other family members and my uncle, they're the ones that like really work with the agriculture there.
0: How many acres are we talking about?
1: Not that many. If at most, I think my grandpa only owns maybe two acres. The the plots are very small. Like they're not like here where you see like, like expanding past the eye can see and it's like yeah. one person that owns it. It's a lot of very small individual ones.
0: Well, because they're working it by hand. And I mean, it's to your point, if you have to be a rich farmer to have irrigation, you probably don't have a big farm, right? So you probably are, are working a smaller lot because you're doing it you know, yourself and that's backbreaking work.
1: Like my grandpa still goes out there every day and he is 81, I think, this year. He's turning 81, but every day he goes out there. I, I'd see him every time I go. He leaves like around 10 a.m. sometimes, or he'll leave earlier and he just hauls out there in his little old 1950s pickup truck, <laughs> grabbing any worker that he sees off the side of the road. And he'll go up to him. He'll be like, Are you working today? No? All right, jump on. Let's go. You can come help me today. And that's what he does all day.
0: <laughs> Isn't that so inspiring? Who knows if I'll make it to 81. But if if I'm 81, I I suspect I will not be working in the fields.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You'll be held up in some retirement home.
0: (laughs) What a tough, healthy, hardworking grandpa you got, you know.
1: It's the culture. It's like they've worked their entire lives that any day where they're not working feels like a bad day for them. Like when my grandpa comes to visit us here, he doesn't come very often because he hates sitting around. And he usually won't last more than a week. And even then, he'll be, like, walking out of the house, not telling anybody, just getting lost somewhere down the street to go for a walk to do something. Because he's so used to constantly, like, every day he has something to do and something else he has to take care of that it's, it's almost kind of like torture for them to not have something to do and relax.
0: He's an action hero. You know yeah. what I mean? Action heroes <laughs> cannot sit still. They Yeah, for <laughs> they sure. <laughs> <have to be. laughs> well, Daniela, I want to you know, congratulate you. I mean, we haven't talked uh, in a while. The reason we're here is, of course, because you won our 2021 Not Real Art Grant for Artists. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. It was, it was honestly the best surprise. It was the first grant that i actually worked up the nerve to apply for and then i won it so that was amazing <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was really interesting to see i mean you know competition was stiff i mean how really do right do you pick between two artists i mean i think we worked out a process among the judges that was fair efficient as objective as it can be you know obviously there's always a little bit of subjectivity Art is so personal, but the roster or the field of competitors was incredibly strong. And but you stood out and all of our winners stood out, obviously. And we're just so grateful and proud of you guys and, you know, are thrilled to have you part of the Not Real Art family.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's definitely been the huge honor to do it, honestly. And then like all the cool stuff that has happened since I won the grant. Like, I never thought that it like all these opportunities would pop up so quickly afterwards. So it's it's been amazing.
0: Well, good. That's fantastic. So where were you when you found out you won? Like, were you in the States? Were you in the studio? Were you in Mexico? Where were you when you got the news?
1: I was here. It was actually a few days before I left. And I knew that they were going to announce the winner that day. So I couldn't sleep the night before because every day that countdown kept coming out. And I was like, oh, my God, my name is on it for the first one and then the next one. And then I was like, oh, no, like it's going to be down to the last six. I don't know if I can do it. And then I was on it. And that honestly made me more stressed (laughs) when when it came down. I think it was the last 10 because I was like, Okay, I'm on the last 10, but I could easily be one of the four that gets kicked off of this list. (laughs) So I feel like that countdown made it extra nerve wracking to the point where I couldn't sleep. So then the next morning, like at 6 a.m., I was just checking the website to see if a podcast had been posted. And I think like around 630, they announced like the winners um, on the actual podcast. And then I heard that I won. And like, I literally jumped out of bed. And I was like, <laughs> I was like calling people at 630. And I was like, Oh, my God, I won the grand. And like, no one was answering me. Obviously, but I was leaving them voicemails.
0: <laughs> waking up all your friends. Yeah. yeah,
1: waking up all my family members. I woke up my sister because she helped me with like, I struggle a lot with writing because I'm dyslexic. So it's always been like an issue for me to write about my work, but my youngest sister actually got a degree from UCLA in English. So whenever I have to do anything that's writing based, like I'll have a conversation with her and she'll help me put it into words. So I had to like call her because she she helped me out a lot with like the writing and trying to figure out a way to like really explain what my work was about.
0: Daniela, I hate to tell you this, but uh, in the fine print of the terms and conditions, it says uh, you cannot have any help in writing your application. So I'm sorry. We have to take back the grant.
1: No, (laughs) no. You're going to have to take back supplies. It's all been spent.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, of course, I'm joking. But I tell you what, that's wonderful. So question for you then, you know, the countdown, it sounded like the countdown was very anxiety inducing for you. Yes. (laughs) So some people loved it. Some people hated it. I figure given the polarity of emotion, you know, in terms of people loving it or hating it, I figure it's a good thing. (laughs) We got to do it again.
1: I think what made it a little more stressful, though, is that it would say at the end, oh, stay tuned for tomorrow. We're going <laughs> to release the next one. And then two hours later, the tomorrow list would come and they'd be like, wait, what's going on?
0: <laughs> oh, oh, there was a must have been a glitch because it yeah. was that. Well, that's weird because right, because the way those are scheduled, they are supposed to go out every 24 hours. We were using a new emailing program, so I probably didn't uh, <laughs> schedule something right. So anyway, <laughs> sorry about that. Good. Deal. Well, hey, you won, right? So yeah. you know, what's it? What's it? <laughs> matter uh, at this point.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So this was your first grant that you've ever applied for. Excellent. Excellent. Well, have you applied for a second one? Because you're on a roll. You need to keep this uh, good energy (laughs) flowing. Not
1: yet. Normally the way I kind of work, just because I teach full time, I usually use all of my vacation time for just my art practice. So I'll make a ton of stuff during summer, Thanksgiving, like anytime I have like an extended period off, like I'll be in the studio 24 seven. And then that's usually after those breaks. end. once I've made some new work that I'll be like, Okay, let me see if I can apply to anything. So it's like with this summer, I made a good amount of stuff, but nothing is finished yet. So I haven't had a chance to apply to anything yet. Like I usually like to apply with fresh things whenever I do a show or anything like that. I don't typically like like to kind of reuse the same work over and over again.
0: Oh, sure. No, I get that. I mean, totally. Right. Like, you know, you want fresh bread. You don't want day old stale bread. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so many questions, so many things to, to unpack here. Your work is so impactful and so special given its content, you know, it's beautiful to look at. And yet when you really see what you're looking at, you understand the power to it and the emotion to it and the humanity of it and you're shining a light on not just a human struggle but in many cases a very specific struggle around immigration at the border and so at least in the pieces i've seen the work that i've seen your subjects i mean they just pull at your heartstrings i mean you know it's like you know the energy that is exuding from these images really just communicates the humanity of your subjects i mean talk a little bit about as long as you want because I'm, I'm very interested talk about your process talk about your subjects talk about why beyond the obvious right why you want to shine a light on what's happening at the border
1: this whole series or just like the turn that my work has taken it really did start like honestly around 2016 after that that horrible day when like america really showed kind of its true colors because honestly up until then. I always knew that there was some issues with kind of the concept of immigration, but I honestly like kind of naively believe that it was it was widely accepted, especially in places like California, where obviously the state benefits so much from it. It's like the majority of the labor here is people that are coming from over there that are being paid way less than any American born like employee would be getting paid. So it's like to me, like, I just thought it was a widely accepted thing that it's like, yeah, these people got here in a way that maybe is not what we consider legal, but hey, it's okay, they're being productive members of society, you know, whatever, like they're making it way through. And it's like when that kind of hit, and all the negativity started coming out where I remember when I would hear Trump talk about it, and the vile things he'd say, and I always knew that he was like a vile man, but I think what made it worse was seeing how many people agreed with what he said. It wasn't so much that he was saying it. It was that there was really this humongous majority that was cheering him on for basically saying what they were already thinking. So I think that's really what kind of propelled it, where it made me really kind of reflect on just kind of my upbringing, where as a kid, like my parents were immigrants, so they came here in the eighties and my dad was lucky enough to be the first one to get established enough that he had a home. So our home was a spot where everybody came like anybody that that was coming over, whether it was a family member, someone he knew, or someone that had referred him to him. Like we were always the the first base that they touched before they went about their journey. So to me, it was something great. It's like these people were coming from somewhere that was not the best for whatever reason that they were leaving and they were getting the opportunity to live a better life. And to me, that was amazing. So it, that's kind of where my work really stems from where I'm try, I want to try to kind of communicate that, that it's like the culture that I grew up in. And then the majority of my subjects are children just because a lot of that stuff is tied back to when I was that age. So that's where a lot of those memories really stem very deeply and where I remember them the most. But I think the other thing that makes the subjects feel a little more human is that they are people I know. Like all of the kids that I paint, draw all of the figures, they're all family members. They're friends that I know. They're kids that were born on this side just because their parents were able to get here in a time where they were able to get kind of established. So they're kind of like me where they're the product of like reaping all the benefits of being here and not having to really go through the struggle that my parents kind of went through. And I think that's where I really started to tie it into some of the stuff that goes on down there where it's like all this stuff that all these kids are going through. It's something that no one should have to live through, like regardless of what their circumstances, regardless of what you think is right or wrong, there shouldn't be human beings suffering just because you don't agree with the way that they cross a piece of land. It's like such an arbitrary thing to me that I don't understand why people hold on so tight to that. Like it makes no sense.
0: If we really cared about those people. And if we really cared about the issue, we would create a rational, humane, accessible pathway.
1: Right. A hundred percent.
0: And yet we, we don't do any of that, which are actions, you know, the old saying, you know, actions speak louder than words. If we really cared, we'd do something about it.
1: Right. And nothing gets done and it's because it benefits, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. Like I sent all that stuff on the border, like all of that is making money. They make money off of how many people are there. They make money off of all the people they have to pay to take care of there. It's like it it secures more funding for that sector of the government. So again, it's creating more jobs for them. So it's more of a money thing. And that's kind of where like a lot of my frustration came out of is when I made El Mercado, which is the painting that has like the pink background. And it kind of depicts like the boy standing in front of like all this lettering that's supposed to indicate kind of like a Mexican market. And a lot of the symbolism in that really deals with how everything that's going on in the border, how all the suffering that's going on, like it's all just a facade for, in reality, making money. It's like they're making money off of what they're doing. So why would they stop?
0: As a gringo born in the States from the Midwest, you know, 51 years old, what do I know about the issue, right? All, but what I do know, I uh, believe, is that we have proven ourselves to be far from wise and far from smart about how to handle this. I mean, to your point alone, right? Like (laughs) these people are doing work that Americans won't do. They pick our food. They do the most basic fundamental work that we all need. Our food, picking our food, large, you know, the crop workers that come to California specifically is obviously what I'm talking about. Or the dishwashers in Chicago that I knew at my buddy's bar, you know, the barbacks and the dishwashers and the, you know, the fantastic guys that work their asses off in food service or bar service in New York or Miami or Chicago or whatever. So they're doing work that we won't do for shit wages but they do it and they do it so fucking well and so right there alone like we're saying oh yeah we'll we'll take your labor but we're not going to give you a humane respectful way of doing this work we're gonna criticize you we're gonna demonize you we're gonna you know so there's all of that Part of it. Right. But then there are the other, you know, we'll, t- we'll talk, well, why are they coming here? Well, they're coming. Well, yes, some of them are coming for work very legitimately, but according to the narratives I hear, they talk about, well, you know, they're running from the gangs and the cartels and so on and so forth. Okay. Well, what did we do to, do we, how did that happen? Right. Well, that happened because, of course, we failed to, to be realistic and honest about the quote unquote war on drugs and failed to actually legalize it, or regulate it and get rid of the cartels by taking the wind out of their sails. If we could actually because you we America is the largest consumer of drugs on the planet. Like, let's just accept it. Let's that's let's why legalize here. it.
1: That's why they try so hard to bring it across the border. It's not because they're trying to be like, well, Americans are garbage, so let's just fill them up with this stuff. No, it's like people here want to buy it. They want to spend top dollar on it. And that's why they're constantly fighting over turf wars over the border. They're trying to find the easiest way for them to cross their product over to their biggest consumer.
0: And that's capitalism, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yet we, to your point, right? Apparently, there's more money in funding this failed, ridiculous, quote unquote, war on drugs than actually legalizing it, regulating it, taxing it. It's a fascinating, you know. It's obviously you take the sort of heartbreaking narratives and you know real life uh, uh, heartbreaking stories out of, it and you just look at it. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating and complex issue. But I'll tell you what, I mean, it is, you know, for me personally, it's just shameful how we've handled it.
1: A 100%. Yeah, that's mainly where a lot of the idea comes from. But mainly with the work, I'm glad to hear that you said that, like, it really spoke to you. A lot of what I try to do is I try to make work that's not confrontational, because I don't want, like, the main thing I want is I want the person on the other side that's outside of the culture to take a moment and try to take it in you know, try to process a little bit, ask some questions, because that's the only way you really get any change or sway anyone towards any other side. But for the most part, I try to keep the symbolism to be kind of a little more like a scavenger hunt. It's like I include a lot of little things in there that some of it is meant to be more so just for my family, since the work is about them. And my, my biggest thing that I always want to do is when my family comes to a show, I want them to be able to see my work and say that they see themselves in it say that they understand what I'm trying to do with some of these things. But I also want the outsider to be able to come up to it and get a sense of what's going on and be able to feel accepted enough in the space of the work to ask a question that maybe they wouldn't be willing to ask if they felt like the work was pointing fingers at who the fault is or things like that.
0: Right. I'm scrolling through some of your drawings right now. And I'm embarrassed to say I have not scanned this barcode or this QR code. Oh, one, you have one. to
1: scan that one. That's going to be that drawing's actually going to be in a show in Brea in October.
0: OK, I'm scanning it right now, by the way. OK, <laughs> here we go. So, by the way, listeners, go to Danny Garcia art dot com. Click on drawings and you're going to see this incredible drawing with this QR code on there. And wow. OK, so. This is what I'm saying. I mean, I I don't want to be a spoiler. I mean, you people just go to (laughs) DannyGarciaArt.com, click on drawings, scan the QR code. But this is what we're talking about, right? Like when children, we talk about how children are the future. We talk about, you know, we we talk about how, you know, we care about human rights. We don't fucking care about human rights.
1: (laughs) They care about controlling human rights.
0: Yeah. You know, and listen, I mean, I'd like to think that I always gave a shit but i tell you what you know i became a dad when i was 42 so late in life kind of dad older dad but i tell you what now i really understand you know i i have empathy in a way i never had before you know when i see children suffering and they don't have to yeah i mean the fact that you would separate a child from its mother nothing is more evil than that
1: yeah and the thing is that they they do it on purpose. They do it on purpose just to make it easier, again, to get rid of the parent. But if they hold on to the child, again, it's like it's, it's a whole thing. Like if you, if you guys scan that QR code, like I have a couple articles in there. They talk a lot to kind of that situation and what's going on with that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to read them later. But I that to me is the... You know, and I don't use the word evil much because I think it tends to get overused. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a mental health issue. I think these people are fucking crazy. Like you're insane. (laughs) You're mad, you know?
1: Yeah. The way that I've kind of come to terms with it is I've had a lot of confrontations with people that have these insane viewpoints and it kind of boils down to these are very unhappy people that have had not the best lives, usually kind of mediocre. And they are always looking for someone to blame whatever the issues are on. So they don't have to confront the fact that, hey, maybe the issue was in something I did, since the only one in control of your life is you. When 2016 rolls around, this man gives them plenty of people to blame. You know, it's, it makes it, it gives them an easy out. And I think that's honestly what rallied so many people towards it. It's that. He was who they were internalizing. It's like they were angry people already that it wasn't because they had something legitimate against a specific group, but it was because they were looking for something to blame, whatever it is that's wrong in their lives right now. And he gave them plenty of targets.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, right? I mean, it's, it, you know, it's far easier to blame somebody else than accept responsibility. Right. We look for the scapegoats all the time. You know, a lot of people may not realize this, but in this country, in the civil, during the Civil War the white folks that were most opposed to freeing the slaves were those impoverished white folks that the only thing that separated them from being from the slaves really was the fact that they were white, right? They were poor. They were uneducated.
1: They were living these horrible lives. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They had a horrible life, but they were white. That was the one privilege that they had above slaves. So they knew as soon as the slaves were freed, like, okay. So anyway, so the point, I guess just the point is, is that nobody really Just human nature, it seems that it's easy to blame folks. Well, what gives you hope, Daniela?
1: Honestly, I think the main thing that really gives me hope is the few people that I've been able to encounter that have been outside of the culture, that have been very much leaning towards like another side or whatever, and then meeting them in a show or just conversing with them and talking about my work, and then just kind of seeing that moment where, for that slight moment, they're not really – hanging on the fact that these are immigrants they're more so giving them that sense of humanity because they're they're hearing a story that goes along with it so like giving them that sense of like really understanding that these are people they're not numbers they're not photographs that you see rolling through the internet or whatever it is or quotes or whatever like these are actual people that like in this moment in this time like whether they're stuck on the border or walking around here in the U.S. but being living in a constant state of fear by being harassed by ICE or all this stuff. It's like these are people trying to live their lives that can't like they can't just walk around and do a normal life the way everyone else is because they're being targeted. And it's again it's because the light got shifted towards them in that negative way. So I think getting that opportunity to really talk to people one-on-one and just for that flicker of a moment where they start to understand even if it goes away a little bit later it's like that gives me hope it's like people can be reasoned with you just have to kind of take the time to do it and i think the biggest thing is you can't do it in a confrontational way because it's like as soon as you start being confrontational and you start telling them well you're a freaking idiot for believing this it's like that automatically sets them off in the other direction and it closes everybody off So that's why I try to make work that's more inviting, that'll call attention to multiple people and not just one solid group, because I want there to be that open conversation with everybody to hopefully sway a few minds in the other way.
0: I mean, you've hit the nail on the head because none of this gets resolved if we we don't start talking to one another, you know, and looking into people's eyes, right? And see our common humanity. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, and this and this goes even for, you know, the crazy white people that we're talking about. I mean, the reality is that anybody, no matter what your race, creed, or color, wants the same things. They want basic dignity. They want to be able to, to feed their family, provide some security, look for some respect some security. I mean, it's not, these are common things. Like who doesn't want these things? Everybody wants these things. And anybody would, who loves their kids, who loves their family, given a drought, given a famine, given crime, given some existential threat, would do what you have to do to survive. And if that meant crossing a border illegally, you would do that
1: exactly but we have to we have, the only way that that's going to become something that's universally accepted is if we get rid of the the mentality that honestly a lot of people grow up with here in the US is that well if i have something and you have it too now it's worth less because we both have it kind of thing. So it turns into that whole thing where they believe that what they have is worth more if other people can't have it, like that limited edition kind of feeling. And I feel like that's where they a lot of people feel threatened when they start hearing that like immigrants come over and like, they get benefits or whatever it is, and they're getting a job. And that's where that mentality of like, well, they're stealing this person's job or whatever, because it comes into well, if they have it, then it obviously can't be worth the same when I have it too. So they can't have it at all. Only I can have it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so much of wealth, I guess, if you buy into the wealth model or the wealth ethos, it it is all about winner take all, right? I mean, it's a zero sum game. Exactly. It's a zero sum game. And the reality is that's not a sustainable model (laughs) for the common good. And we've politicized that idea of the common good. Why is the common good, the idea of the common good, a bad thing?
1: Yeah. Like, why is it something up for debate?
0: Yeah. It's like that to me. That's just like so ridiculous. Why wouldn't I want a secure world where everyone is fed, safe and healthy?
1: Right. Because you never know. (laughs) Like right now you might be doing great. You might have a job. You might be living in like the house of your dreams, but you never know when when the circumstances are going to change and you're going to be the one now that's going to be depending off of the services that you're the one saying that no one else should get kind of thing. It's like, it's true. Like you never know when, when your luck's going to change.
0: Yeah. And you know, if, if we had learned anything, if anybody was paying attention, they might've realized that the last year and a half.
1: Yeah. During COVID exactly.
0: (laughs) The fragility of life. Like that's the thing. Like our species is so arrogant we fail to have, you know, I still think we've just failed to appreciate that we are part of nature and nature is out to kill us. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, like, it's like for, you know, it's a life is so fragile. So what the fuck are you being an asshole about? You know what I mean?
1: It's like, why are you on nature's side trying to take someone else down with you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, man. Right. I was reading a this is kind of off topic, but I I you know, our species is so crazy. I was reading this article yesterday and there's this company that's raised a bunch of money because these scientists are using this genetic tool called CRISPR which is all about genetic modification. You can modify genes. It's been around for a while. Maybe it was it was recently in China, there was a geneticist who was using CRISPR to modify human cells. It was a big controversy. Anyway, this company has got funding because they want to use CRISPR to bring back the woolly mammoth. And I'm just like, We can't even take care of the animals that are on this planet already. And And you want to
1: bring back a predator and
0: you, and (laughs) an extinct and what could possibly go right about
1: this? (laughs) It's like they completely ditched the nineties and didn't watch the three Jurassic park movies. (laughs)
0: Well, that's what that's exactly what I thought. It's like, did anybody except me see Jurassic Park? I got it. I don't know.
1: (laughs) It doesn't end well for anybody.
0: (laughs) No, it never. No, no, it it cannot. It cannot. Well, so you're teaching full time. Yes. Tell me and tell us about your students. Tell us about your class. Like I want to know, you know, teachers are angels among us, teachers, nurses. I have nothing but but love and respect. So let's talk about your students. Let's talk about your class.
1: I'm currently teaching high school kids over in Thousand Oaks. This year I'm teaching intro to art, life drawing and AP Studio. And it's honestly, it's a blast. It's so much fun teaching art like these kids come in for the most part, especially after a year of remote learning, just excited to be in the room. It's so much fun working with them like we really work on a foundation. And the big thing I like to focus on with the kids is I tell them all the same thing. I tell them it doesn't matter whether you're talented. It matters whether or not you're willing to work hard. Because I'll teach you everything you need to know from the ground up. But whether or not you're willing to put in the effort is going to determine how you're going to do by the end of the year. And for the most part, a lot of the kids take that to heart. And I see a lot of kids improving just from like three or four weeks in that we've been. And it's just it's a joy. It's a joy to watch them take the time to really learn how to do like something that's so out of their comfort zone because for the most part intro to art is usually a dumping ground at high schools it's it's where you put all the kids that have no elective or they just got added to the school or their schedule's funky so they don't fit anywhere else so they all get tossed into art most of them don't really care about it they've never picked up a pencil or anything it's really fun seeing them kind of get into it when we move through.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny listening to you talk. I'm remembering back that feeling I got when I walked into art class. There was always an energy about art class that, for me anyway, was super liberating and fun. It was the cool spins like, that's where I felt the coolest. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be a space where the kids get to socialize a little bit. Yeah, we get to do some fun projects, but it's like... It's meant to be more of a breathing room for them. And at least that's the way I try to set up the classroom environment so that kids come in and like, even if it's the last class of the day, they're still feeling a little more at ease and they're willing to put in the work because they know that they're going to get the time to talk to their friends. So they have that little bit of a fun period.
0: Yeah. How many years have you been teaching now?
1: This is actually the start of my second year. I just graduated from my credentialing program when COVID hit.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So that was, that was terrifying. I had just graduated from the credentialing program and everyone was basically saying that there wasn't going to be any jobs. (laughs) So that was scary. And then I think I ended up getting hired at the school after applying to like 40 different schools throughout the whole summer. I only got three interviews from all those applications and I got hired at the school I work at now a week before school started. So I didn't even know what I was teaching that first year until two days before when the principal was like, oh, by the way, this is your schedule.
0: Oh my goodness. So you could have been teaching English.
1: Well, it was, they had so many different art classes that I didn't know what I was going to get. Cause the, the school I teach at at Westlake has a pretty big program. Like they have a whole program just for digital art, where it's like graphic design, digital media, things like that. And then they Mm -hmm. also have like the fine arts, like life drawing, printmaking intro to art ceramics. So they had like art history. They had like a lot of different stuff that fell under the art category and they didn't tell me what I was going to teach until they figured it out two days before we started.
0: (laughs) Okay. So you most likely knew you were going to land in the arts department somewhere. You just didn't know what class or classes you might be teaching. Got it.
1: Yeah. I just didn't know specifically which class from art I was going to teach. That was a little nerve wracking because it is very different. And I ended up getting like a graphic design class and then an intro class. And I had never taught graphic design. Like I barely knew how to use Photoshop and I had to somehow teach these kids how to use Photoshop without using Photoshop because we were all online. So I had to find some program that was free that mimicked it so the kids could use it. So it was very nerve wracking. The first year was a lot of, a lot of stress. I basically felt like I was catching my breath the whole year.
0: Sure. Yeah. You're sort of thrown into it, building the airplane while you're uh, (laughs) in the air or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. So how does teaching impact your practice? Because if you're working full time, when do you find studio time? I mean, are you working at night or the weekends? Both? Do you ever sleep? Well, last year
1: (laughs) I wasn't doing very much just because I was teaching full time, but then I was prepping to teach after school basically until I went to sleep. So last year it was only during vacation times that I was working on anything. And it was horrible the first year. Like I felt so dissociated from it that like, I, I almost felt like I didn't want to go back for year two, because it felt like I, I had no time. It's like the whole point I wanted to teach is because I was supposedly going to get time after school and vacation time to keep working while still making a, a good living. But I kept going and like this second year, since I already have like most of my material from last year, it's been a lot easier I get everything done when I'm on campus so I I come home and I paint it's like I usually get home around like 3 30 or 4 and I'll usually be in my studio from 4 to 8 4 to 9 and then usually weekends and then all day as soon as I have like a, a longer vacation like whenever we have days off from school or just like the longer breaks it's like I'm in here all the time
0: so, do you have several works in progress at the same time? How do you work in the studio?
1: Yes, I usually have anywhere between 4 to 10 works going at the same time. Usually the way it kind of goes is I'll build the canvas or I'll stretch or I'll take the paper out or whatever it is I'm working on, I'll prime it and then I'll put like a like a general layer on it cuz I don't like working on like white canvas or white linen. Like I don't, I don't like the white surface. It's very intimidating. So I'll usually throw something, some leftover paint on it just to put a ground. And then I'll have an idea, a very loose idea of what I want to do. And I'll have two to three reference images to start. And I'll put a general drawing down kind of in charcoal. And I'll usually put that down and I'll grab another one. And the next painting will usually have at least a first layer of paint. So I'll go in again with the charcoal and I'll either add in elements. It's almost kind of like collaging the way my work kind of comes along. Like I start off with something very basic and then I'll add elements that I think go well with it. And then usually I'll take them away or I'll reposition them or I'll adjust the placement of everything until I end up at a point where I feel like, okay, this feels like it's done. But it's usually about like four to five layers of paint and multiple redraws till I get to the end. That's usually why it takes me a couple months to finish something, just because kind of as time goes by, like the idea that I have for it shifts a little bit. So it adjusts with whatever I'm thinking about at the time.
0: Once you have a body of work completed, how do you go about showing that work and trying to sell that work? Do you have a gallery that you like to work with that represents you? Do you market your work directly to your collectors via the internet? What is your approach to your promotion and marketing?
1: At the moment, it's very limited to what I can market online. So posting stuff like on Instagram, on my website, if there's an open call or something, then I'll usually apply to that. But I haven't gotten to a point yet where I've really like met a gallery that was interested enough to represent me or anything. Like it's still it's very early on. Like I feel that maybe in a few years, once I have kind of more going and I've been showing a little more often, I might get to that point. But I do have like some collectors that I have just connections with from the past, and usually I'll show them something, and then occasionally they'll be able to find me an opportunity or like a venue where I can show, and then I'll I'll be able to do it kind of that way.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the artist. Perhaps the, uh, an artist's greatest challenge, right? Like the Definitely. business stuff. Is that something they don't <laughs> yeah, teach
1: you? Like nobody teaches you how to do that when you're in art school. All they tell you is make. It's like make all this stuff. But then you get to a point where your studio is so full that it's like I can't even make anything else because I have no room to put it in. During the summer, that's how I felt. Like all all of my floor space, which is usually where I lean all my paintings, was it was full to the brim. So I, had, I I couldn't make anything else unless I either hung it up somewhere around the house, which if you ever see my house, it's like a mini museum just because I put stuff up just to get it off my floor so I can make something else. <laughs> but that's why it's always great when I get into a show because I'm like, yes, take it. Take it off my floor. I don't want to see it anymore. I need more room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. So is there a format that you like to work in or are most of your canvases? You said you build your own canvases.
1: I do, I buy like the stretcher bars pre-made and I usually have like a size in mind. I usually work in a square format, at least 30 inches, if not bigger. I like working kind of bigger just so I don't get lost in like small details. Like I'd rather look at it as a whole. But yeah, like I usually, I buy the stuff, once I have an idea of rolling, I'll get the stretcher bars, I'll build them. Um, I have like a giant roll of linen that I use and I'll usually just cut it down, I'll stretch them. And then when it comes time to, like, if I'm lucky enough to show something, then my husband will usually make a frame in the garage for it, and then it'll finally get off my floor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that. So you're living in a museum.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. What is your artwork selling for these days? What price range uh, is your work at these days?
1: I haven't sold too many works so far, but the few that I've sold have been um, under a thousand for the most part. Like I sold a watercolor painting to a collector in Chicago and I think they bought it for like 500. So that was pretty good. I have a few paintings that I sold to a collector up in San Luis Obispo and they have kind of like connections to the university there. So... They had already reached out to me and told me that they were donating them as part of the permanent collection at the school. So that'll be really fun.
0: Wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's going to be really fun to see it because they told me that part of like the condition of their donation is that it had to be on permanent display. So that's going to be fun to go get to go see some of the work there.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, I am sorry to ask these very pointed questions. I mean, these are like the questions that artists hate to get, you know, because it's (laughs) like the idea of pricing a painting is one of the most daunting things that artists have to think about.
1: A hundred percent. It's just, I feel like I've gotten a lot better at it. I I definitely feel like I was underselling myself at the beginning. It's like you said, it's so daunting because it's art is already so expensive and Even though, like, even though I know that the work is worth more, I'd rather price it less if I know it's going to go to a good home. Because at the end of the day, once I finish something, I don't want it in my studio anymore. Like, I want it out. Like, wherever it's going to go into the world, I just don't want to see it because I want to move on to the next thing. So, if someone's willing to buy it for a little less than what I was thinking, I'm like, it's fine. Just make sure you take care of it. Don't you dare sell it at an auction and we're fine.
0: Well, you know, it's an interesting conversation because, listen, there's no shortage of opinions about why an artist should do any one thing or what have you. But on a certain level, I would argue, right, because I mean, most of the artists that I've known over the years, I mean, the thing that they want more than anything is for their paintings or their work to be enjoyed by somebody. Right. And so the month like that's number one. Right. So like the money to most artists is almost secondary. Right. Yeah. So, and I know this is like a controversial idea. I'm not saying this is works for everybody, but it's like if an artist had 20 paintings laying around that hadn't sold. Right. And you know, I'm not going to ask how many hours you have in it. I'm not going right. to ask, you know, cause you can, I know you can't answer those questions. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. But you know what? If let's say the canvases are somewhere between, you know, the two by threes or four by sixes or whatever they are, you know, range of things, you know, price them all at four 99 price them all at two nine. The point is to sell them. You don't want them laying around. So if you can say, Oh yeah, I sell all my work. Great. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you price to sell price to sell price to sell, you know, and that's, nothing's going to make you feel more better than knowing that all of your work sold out.
1: Yeah, that's the best.
0: <laughs> right. And you know, so price it to sell. It's like, okay, all these paintings are $9.99. <laughs> I mean $999. You know? I feel like artists might be surprised at the effectiveness of that. And then you get to say that, you know, yeah, all my work sells.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm pretty I'm pretty lucky in the sense that I don't I don't make a living. I don't depend on making a living off of my work. It's like I I teach full time. So it's like my income comes from my teaching. So you know, whether or not like I get full price for a painting, it doesn't bother me. I'm like, you want it? I'm like, are you going to take care of it? You know what? Like I'll lower it down. You can have it. Take care of it. Hang it somewhere. Do whatever you want. Just get it off my floor.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, it's like because this gets to the complexity of the issue. Every artist is different. Some artists have a full time job and they know they got their bills paid. So the pressure to sell is is not so great. There are plenty of artists out there whose whole entire livelihood comes from their art sales. And it's uh, it's stressful.
1: Yeah. It's terrifying too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is well, you know, cause these are your babies, right. As yeah. well. It's like, who's going to love your baby too. You know, who's going to adopt your baby and take it home and raise it, you know?
1: Right. <laughs> I love that analogy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so talk about the work you're doing right now, the body of work that you're creating today, take us through it. Talk, explain to what's, what you're working on.
1: Right now, I've been very interested on traditions or more so rituals, like rituals that I grew up with, like specifically right now with birthday parties. It's things that I didn't realize were strange until again, I met my husband because he's he's also white. So he's, you know, a whole different perspective on it. And like, I, I remember when he first came to one of the birthday parties at my family's house. And it was a birthday party for a little kid. And it's like a tradition that whenever the kid is going to bite the cake, everyone fights over who to shove the kid's head the hardest into the cake, even if no one else gets cake. It doesn't matter if nobody gets cake. That's not what the cake is for. It's to shove the kid's face in it as hard as you can.
0: That's the ritual.
1: yeah. And I rem- it was so normal for me. I remember the first time he came, he was like, almost like horrified. He's just like, whoa, <laughs> you're gonna hurt that kid. And then I was like, he's fine. Like, this is it's his birthday. It's what we do on his birthday. So it's like that kind of perspective I get from him has really, it's made me reflect on some of the things that I realize now are kind of more like rituals. And I've been making a series recently, breaking down some of the things that happen in like a birthday party. Like the first one is the cake cutting so it's like they bring the cake out everybody sings it's a very happy moment and then the next one is where they start chanting que le muerda which means bite the cake and then everyone's fighting over kind of like who to shove the kid's head into or who's going to do it first who's going to do it faster that they get the credit of doing it and all this stuff and then like moving on to like the the gift giving like rituals where the kid always has to show off all the stuff that they got and things like that Kind of spending a little time on each work and thinking about, well, what does this stuff really mean? And kind of working through some of the the emotions that I feel when I was a kid going through that stuff. Like I remember when it was my birthday, it was an equal fear of terror and joy. Because I knew people were going to fight over who was going to shove me in that cake. And it was that sense of like distrust, fear, terror. But then at the same time, after it happened, like that overwhelmingly sense of joy, like, wow, you guys love me so much that you're fighting over who gets to do this to me. Like, I feel so (laughs) loved. Like, So just kind of working through, really reflecting on, well, why did all of this make sense when I was a kid? But now it seems a little out of place as an adult kind of thing.
0: Feels like a lot of these cake decorations are on the like a like a round cake with a bullseye on the top.
1: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> hey,
0: happy birthday. <laughs> I remember
1: when I was a kid, I always wanted an ice cream cake, but my parents never let us have one. It was always this mushy type of cake that I hated that was called Tres Leches. It was super mushy. And I never understood why we couldn't have one until one year I bought my brother an ice cream cake when he was like Ten or something, and then I realized why we don't buy an ice cream cake. It's because when you try to shove their face in, it's gonna bounce off. Doesn't work and it so did. Well. <laughs> It bounced off like it sounded like he like we smashed his head into a brick,
0: <laughs> and then he got hypothermia or frostbite.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's like all these kind of things that I used to think that just kind of working through them. So like the rituals, a lot of the stories that I heard, like I've just been diving into some of that stuff and reflecting on it with my recent work.
0: That's so great, man. That's so great. Yeah. Rituals are, you got me thinking about, you know, what rituals, you know, we had kind of coming up and it is fascinating because you're right. It's like, or even when I, you know, maybe if I was dating somebody, or a friend, you go to somebody else's house for something and then you see their world and their rituals. This is the beauty of, of our common human experience. And yet, you know, it's not some it's, so it's not always so common.
1: <laughs> <You know>?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Well, Daniela Garcia, I tell you what, I am so grateful to know you. I'm so grateful for you to be, you know, part of the Not Real Art family. You know, congratulations on your win of the 2021 Not Real Art grant. We just thank you for all you do. We've got more stuff to come where your interview is going to be published. You know, Katie Love, our our writer, interviewed you and your interview will publish with the podcast at the same time. I want to come visit your studio. We got to like hang out, man.
1: Please. I love when people come to visit my studio. Nobody comes because I'm so far away.
0: <laughs> well, you're not that far. You're in Ventura, right?
1: Yeah, I live in Oxnard, so a little closer than the actual city of Ventura. But it's so many of the people that I associate with are like in the downtown L.A. art scene that it's, you know, leaving L.A. is it's a trek for anybody just because they're so used to being like everything they do is within those like 10 city blocks or whatever it may be that it's it it feel. I understand like it feels like a trek for them to go out like somewhere else for just one thing. Well, I
0: love, (laughs) you know, actually, I I love taking my kids to the uh, beach at Oxnard Shorts. We just live over the hill here in the valley.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Not too far off. Not too
0: far. So coming to Oxford, that that doesn't scare me.
1: Awesome. (laughs) You're welcome to come by whenever.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, fantastic. Well, before we sign off, please tell our listeners where they can find you online and follow you on Instagram.
1: Yeah. So if you're looking to follow me on Instagram, just look up D-A-H-N-N-I-I. It should be... Or actually, no, it should be two N's and three I's. Danny, basically. (laughs) dehani that's what it spells (laughs) But if you also look on my website, you can find me there. It's just going to be DannyGarciaArt.com.
0: Fantastic. Well, Daniela Garcia, your students are so lucky to have you.
1: Thank you. You're a
0: gift. And uh, we're so lucky to know you as well. Thank you for all you do. And will you do me a favor? Will you come back on the podcast at some other point and talk to us again?
1: Oh, definitely. I'd love to. I love having these kind of conversations.
0: <laughs> it's great. Me too. Well, Daniela, thanks so much. You have a great day.
1: Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye.
0: Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.